If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, verse 25, the very last verse in the book of Acts. Now, most of the time we start where the chapter breaks are, but you'll see why we're starting at the end of Acts and verse 25, end of Acts 12 and verse 25. We talk about missionaries. Most of us have this picture in our mind that deepest, darkest Africa, that cliche phrase. I was a missionary in Africa, and I wasn't in deepest, darkest. I was right outside Johannesburg, a town that's as big as Kansas City with skyscrapers and superhighways and malls and movie theaters and all that sort of stuff. But I worked with people who lived in squatter shacks, 10 by 10 shacks with dirt floor and no running water and no electricity. But you could go to deepest, darkest Africa. But so much of the world's population now is moving to cities. And so many of the world's greatest and brightest are going to universities. So it's not just here at the University of Nebraska among internationals, but as I said with Caroline, with T.D. and Sarah, and with countless others that focus on ministering to university students. And so we have this idea of missionaries of being sent, missionaries of being other, someone other than us, someplace other than where we live. But we need to recall that we all have a commission. You guys know the Great Commission, Matthew 28, and verse 18, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. And he says in verse 19, Matthew 28, 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. The better word there is win, to win them to faith in Christ. So we go in order to win them to faith in Christ. And once we've won them to faith in Christ, we baptize them as believers in Jesus and we teach them to do everything he's commanded. And that is the commission the mission, the command of every Christ follower. So even though you and I live in Lincoln, Nebraska, and we may never go to someplace other, we may never even step on the campus of the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, but we have a mission where we live among the people we're put in contact with, our coworkers, our family, our friends, our neighbors, the person that we meet walking down the street. God has called us to be his missionaries. So with that in mind, we uh, have got our scripture memory verse of the month. And that scripture memory verse of the month is from the last week's sermon. And we'll say that together. And that's Acts chapter 12, verse 24, if you'd say it with me. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Acts 12, 24. And now if you've got your Bibles and you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's word, let's turn our attention to verse 25 of Acts chapter 12. Verse 24 is the summary of the ministry uh, that had happened therein. And now we pick up with our missionaries. Acts chapter 12, verse 25 through 13, 12. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Verse chapter 13. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Simeon called Niger, excuse me, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogue. John was with them there as their helper. 
They traveled through the whole island until they reached Paphos. They met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bargesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Verse 9. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elamus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time and will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately. Mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Let's pray once more. God, our Father, we've opened your word again, and we pray you open our minds and our hearts. Our minds that we would understand, our hearts that we would be encouraged and obey, that we would be filled with faith, that though we may never go to Africa or a university, or Cyprus as these missionaries. We go right where you've sent us, and you've called us to share the good news of Jesus. So, Father, challenge us and encourage us by your word and through this same spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We're going to learn a few things about missionaries today, and we've got five points to observe about missionaries, and then five questions for application in our final point, or conclusion, if you will. And the first thing we see in this passage of Scripture about missionaries is that missionaries are supported by the church. Missionaries are supported by the church. Ron and Judy have a home church right here in Lincoln. But they have members of the entire church that support them from all over. I would imagine if I asked you, you have people that pray for you and give to you financially from all over the world probably, don't you? But we are the church of Jesus Christ and missionaries are supported by the church. And so what you see in verse 25 there is when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem. Remember last week, or if you go back and read, Barnabas and Saul had taken an offering because of a famine in Jerusalem to support the church in Jerusalem and they had come from the church in Antioch. So now they're going back to Antioch. And though Jerusalem was the mother church, Jerusalem was the first church, and Jerusalem comes back into our story in Acts chapter 15 with the council of Jerusalem and decisions about theology and the direction of the church, Antioch now really becomes the center for the mission of the church. Closer to the sea, a cosmopolitan city, and it's the church in Antioch. And notice verse 1 of chapter 13. It says there were prophets and teachers there. We don't have listed here who the pastor of the church at Antioch was. It's not essential to know who the pastor was, but Luke, as he does, introduces folks that we need to know now or we're going to hear about later because he's that kind of writer. You know how it is when you're watching a TV show or a movie or you read a book and you get to a chapter and you read and then the next chapter doesn't seem to match with that one. You think, oh, these two characters are going to meet up sooner or later. Well, Luke oftentimes has that habit of introducing a character to us along the way that's going to come back. And he says, in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, we know. 
Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Barnabas was from Cyprus. In just a moment as we get there and he goes to the church, or they go to Cyprus, you have to wonder, did they go to Cyprus? Because Barnabas said, hey, I'm from there. I've got family there that need to know Jesus. I've got friends there that need to go, Jesus, come here. It says that the Holy Spirit sent them, but did God put that desire in Barnabas' heart and call Barnabas out in order to share the gospel in Cyprus? And then there's Simeon called Niger, Lucius the Cyrene, Manian and Herod, and uh, it says they had been brought up, or Manian had been brought up with Herod, and it's this idea of that he was a peer. Either he went to school with him, or he was friends with him, or part of the family, or something like that. So interesting that they mentioned that. Let's move on to our second point. That missionaries are called by the Holy Spirit. Though they're supported by the church, though the church is integral in the sending and supporting and calling of missionaries, it's the Holy Spirit Himself who calls them. Look at what happened there in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. We've talked about fasting around here. We haven't practiced a fast as a church I've encouraged fasting at different parts, and you know that. If you want to know more about fasting, you can read, maybe not on the internet, because Googling about fasting on the internet, but Christian fasting or something like that. The better source would be to take your Bible and go to the concordance in the back, if you have a good old paper Bible, and look up the word fasting or fast, and then read every instance of a fast or fasting in the entire Bible, and you see that there's something in common with fasting. Most often when it's fasting, it's in combination with prayer. Most often when there's fasting, it is at a time when those who are followers of God need God's Spirit to guide them. They're either in some crisis situation or they have a major, do I go A or do I go B? Do I go right or do I go left? And they're asking God, to speak to them and guide them, to encourage them and challenge them. And so the church was praying and fasting. And the Holy Spirit says to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Now, we don't know how the Holy Spirit said that. Was there literally a voice? Was one of them, one of the ones named as a prophet, had that inspiration and said, I know the Holy Spirit said this, and the rest of them said, yep, we know this guy's character. We know the Holy Spirit speaks to him. That's true. But what does it say? So after they fasted and prayed, so they were still fasting, they were still praying, they confirmed the message from the Holy Spirit, and then they placed their hands on them and sent them off. We do that today. We lay our hands when we ordain a pastor. We lay our hands when we ordain a deacon. And we can lay our hands when we send out missionaries. Whether we're sending people out on a mission trip that's short term. Or whether we're sending folks on that are going to be going overseas for a long time. Like our friend Bridget Barth. You believe it's been a year since Bridget has been in Sudan. We still need to pray for her and support her. And those of you that know her, I imagine you've heard from her. But we lay our hands on them. It's symbolic in a sense that... As the New Testament shows us that, we're demonstrating that and laying our hands to send them out. But there's also a spiritual meaning to that, that we're connected. That I was ordained by men who were ordained, by men who were ordained, that men who were ordained. And going all the way back to the New Testament, we would assume we send missionaries out. Let's move on to your third point there. Missionaries proclaim the gospel as the Holy Spirit leads. Missionaries proclaim the gospel as the Holy Spirit leads. Verse 4 and 5, they sent them on their way by the Holy Spirit. 
How did they know where to go? Well, the Holy Spirit told them where to go. As I said, Barnabas was from Cyprus, so it very well may have been that there was some consultation, but there was some way that they knew for sure that God by the Holy Spirit sent them. And so they went down to Seleucia, that's the seaport nearest Antioch, about 15 miles away. It would take them a good day to walk there. And they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, that's the eastern port, closest to where Seleucus would be, about 60 miles across the ocean from there. They sailed, well, the Mediterranean Sea, and they get there, and they proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogues, and John was their helper with them. Now, this would become the pattern of Paul. It's Saul right here, but you're about to see, as you heard me read it, that Saul, also known as Paul in verse 9, the first time Acts calls him Paul, that's what we know him as, the Apostle Paul. We talk about the Apostle Paul having written the epistles in our New Testament. So here's where his name changes officially for us in the document that is the book of Acts. But the pattern of Paul as a missionary would be to start in the Jewish synagogue, to start with those who had what we know as the Old Testament, and to share the gospel there, and if and when they didn't respond, to go to the Gentiles as well. Which leads us to that fourth point. Missionaries expect opposition to the gospel. Missionaries expect opposition to the gospel. When you challenge someone's worldview. When the Holy Spirit begins to move and convict them that they are not as good of a person as they think they are because they compare themselves to other fallen people, but they are sinners compared to a righteous and holy God, there's going to be opposition. There are authority structures, there are power structures, in addition to religions that are going to stand in direct opposition to the gospel. Verse 6 says that they went throughout the whole island until they came to Paphos. That was the other side of the island. We don't know how long it took them, but they're walking presumptively. They're preaching the gospel in towns and villages along the way. So they go from one side of Cyprus to the other. Cyprus is about 90 to 100 miles east and west and about 60 miles as fat as it is north and south. You could spend some time and walk around the entire island of Cyprus yourself if you had a few weeks. So they must have. And when they got there, they meet a fellow nicknamed Bar-Jesus, son of salvation. And this guy named Bar-Jesus, also known as Elamis, we see in a moment here, was a court wizard, but more likely a charlatan, a trickster. When Luke uses this term, Bar-Jesus, for him, it's because he's using it in a derogatory sense. And his name, Elamis, literally, the uh, interpretation may mean interpreter of dreams. So whether this guy was demonically inspired and could actually interpret dreams by the power of the devil, Satan himself, or whether he was just a charlatan and he acted like he could interpret dreams in order to ingratiate himself to the proconsul, in order to have a position of power and be nearby all that, we don't know. But Elamis, it says in verse 8, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. It's interesting that it uses that phrase. That means the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, was 
coming to the Christian faith. He had understood and heard uh, Saul, Paul, and Barnabas enough that he had, his heart, his mind was turning to Christianity. So let's look at our fifth point about missionaries. They respond in the power of the Holy Spirit. They respond in the power of the Holy Spirit. What happened? Then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that phrase. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. This wasn't just because he was mad at this guy. This wasn't just because he knew that this guy was taking advantage of the proconsul. This wasn't because he wanted to ingratiate himself to the proconsul. This is because he, Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit that he could see spiritually what Elamis Bar-Jesus was doing. And he flat out called him out. He didn't pull any punches. He didn't go easy on him. He says, you are a child of the devil. He says, you're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. You'll never stop perverting the ways. And he says, the hand of the Lord is against you. And so you know God is powerful. And you know the one true God. In order to get your attention, Elamis, you are going to be blind for a time. It doesn't say how long a time. He doesn't come back in the narrative acts. We don't know. But we have to believe since it's God's word and it's true. It was for a time. And a mist of darkness fell on him, Scripture says to us. As we've seen many times in the book of Acts, because the church was just being started, and because the world knew nothing of Jesus, God, by His divine power, used miracles to get the attention of the unbelieving world. Miracles to confirm His power by the Holy Spirit of His missionaries, His preachers, His prophets, and His teachers. And that's what happens here again. Missionaries do respond in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you might say, do these things still happen today? They do. Not as common as they might have in the New Testament, but I know friends, people that I've talked to, And I myself, and maybe some of you, have seen legitimate miracles, physical healings, things that have no explanation uh, logically or rationally or by the powers of uh, physics in this earth that God has done them. God is still God. He is still powerful. He can still, if He desires, use the Holy Spirit to do amazing things to protect His people Or to prove his message. So we've got to go on. As we reach our conclusion. Because we've seen missionaries are supported by the church. They're called out by the Holy Spirit. They're. Proclaim as the Holy Spirit leads them. They expect to be opposed. Because of the message they're bringing. And they respond in the power of the Holy Spirit. And do miraculous things even now. But how does all this apply to us? And that's where we have some points for our consideration for each and every one of us to think about. And the first one there is, what is my part in supporting missionaries? You belong to a Southern Baptist church who gives the cooperative program. You might give to Annie Armstrong and Lottie Moon as we present those things to you. You pray for missionaries. And you might say things like, God bless the missionaries. I had a professor in seminary that said, we shouldn't pray, God bless the missionary prayers. We need to pray specific prayers because we need to know specific missionaries. And as we're in relationship with them, we know their life. We know their personality. We know their character. And our hearts are knit with their hearts. And because we have a relationship with them, we pray for them. God bless the missionaries is great, but let's pray more specifically than that. And ask God to do things that only He can do with people we know. 
If you don't know any other missionaries, you know Ron and Judy now, you can come up and shake their hand. You can spend time with them. You could even say, hey, have you got plans for lunch today? Take them to lunch. Do whatever you want to do. Get on their list. Call them up. They live right here in Lincoln. You have a part in supporting missionaries. You can pray for missionaries. You can give to support missionaries. You can encourage missionaries. Sometimes it's just a simple note. It's a phone call. It's a FaceTime if they're somewhere where they can do that. To let them know, hey, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? What's the latest in your life and ministry? Just like anyone else. Missionaries are out there doing great work for the kingdom. And we can support them that way first. Our second question for our consideration is that how can I discern God's will for my life? Because it's one thing for me to support other people that are missionaries. But Pastor Aaron, if you started this sermon by saying all of us are missionaries because all of us have been given the great commission to share the gospel with lost people in all of our life. So how do I discern God's will for my life? Remember what I said last week, that it's not so much discerning God's will for my life as discerning God's will. And I find out where God is at work around me. And when I see him at work around me, then I join him where he is at work. That's what Henry Blackaby taught us in experiencing God. And so we seek to discern God's will that's in my life, around my life, and how do I join Him there? Because although you have lots of relationships, there are some people in your life that are more open to the gospel. Some person, people in your life that are more open to a friendship with you. Some people in your life that are more open to be invited to church. Some people in your life that are more open to have a Bible study or read the Bible with you or those discussions. So that's all about discerning God's will in your life. You've got a third question. And that's, when do I share the gospel? When do I share the gospel? Well, we know we should share it all the time or any time, but it doesn't always seem appropriate, right? You don't interrupt a business meeting to say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. I don't know that you get fired, but that might not go well. I think it's best shared when it's one-on-one. When somebody, either God divinely puts you in an appointment with them and they're just ready, and that does happen, and it's pretty cool when it happens, that you're the person who gets to share the gospel with them. And others have built into their life over years or decades or however long. But you're the one that shares the gospel and they trust Christ as your Savior. You're like, wow, I just met this person and they asked Jesus to be their Savior. It's amazing. But there are other people that you've had relationships with for years. They're your kids, your grandkids, friends, co-workers, family members. And you've prayed with them and you've talked to them about the Bible. You've talked to them about Christianity. You've talked to them about Jesus. Back and forth, you've gone for years. And finally, God changes their heart and their mind. And they open their heart up and they decide to trust Jesus as their Savior. When we talk about sharing the gospel, it may be that you need to know how. You know, there are apps today that can help you with that. You can look up on your uh, phone or tablet, a device, evangelism app. Put it in there. There's three or four out of every different one. You can pick the one that works best for you. Then all you have to do is flip the page and answer some questions for folks. We can train you to share the gospel, but there's other ways you can use technology even now. Our fourth question for application, it's what's my response to resistance? There's got to be opposition we learned. We saw that in our passage of Scripture, but people are going to resist you as well when you share the gospel. So what's your response to them? Well, it depends on the situation, who the person is, how they respond to me. Uh, But the bottom line is guided by what we know from the Bible. We respond with love, that love is patient and kind. And all the things that 
1 Corinthians 13 tells us. We respond by clothing ourselves with all the things that Colossians 3 says, with humility and gentleness. We respond in the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We respond as Jesus would respond. That's my response to resistance. Then you've got a final question for your consideration. This one's a why. Why does God empower me? And I'm not going to answer that one for you. You get to answer that one for yourself. We know that God has given us a mission to share the gospel with all people. But you've got to answer, why is it that God empowers you as a Christ follower by the same Holy Spirit we saw at work in this passage of Scripture to share the gospel with others. Let's pray together. God, we hear from your word and we see the example of these first missionaries sent out to share the gospel and face opposition. We have right here in this room with us some real-life modern-day missionaries and Ron and Judy. And we celebrate them and think about how we can join with them and support. But God, the bigger question for all of us is, how can I be a missionary? You've given me these relationships. You've put me in this neighborhood and this job and this town with this family, with these friends. Let us not just think, oh, they're Christians. They're good people. They go to another church. Let us have gospel conversations and ask those life-giving questions and share the truth and love of Jesus. So God, we thank you that you are here among us by your Holy Spirit. We pray that if there's anyone here today who's never trusted Jesus as their Savior and Lord, that they need to admit their sinfulness. They need to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus too. And they need to confess or agree that he is their Savior and Lord that they might be saved. Whatever our decision is today, Father, as we stand and sing, would you have us commit that to you in our heart and share that with someone else in this room? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.